Cool. Today we are uh, hanging out in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's been reading Ecclesiastes this week. Yeah, fantastic. Everybody feeling cheery? Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You're like, oh. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to hang out in that. Let me, just, let me just pray. Father God, we ask now that, Lord, that you would come and speak to us. Father, more than the words that I say, I ask that your spirit would breathe into each one of our hearts and minds. And God, that as we unpack uh, these scriptures together, that we would discover the living, life-giving word of our Father again. We ask it in your name. Amen. Cool. All right, so um, Ecclesiastes, you might want to open your Bible there. So Ecclesiastes, we, we think, we believe, was written by King Solomon. Um, again, towards the end of his life, looking back on all the things he's experienced, all the years that he's lived, and everything that's happened to him, and that he's done, and that he's been involved in, and everything that he's seen under his rule in his kingdom and beyond his kingdom, the things that he's seen and heard, and, and he's looking back on all of this stuff. And essentially what he says is... is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you're like, oh, this is supposed to be a book of hope. This is supposed to be a book that restores my joy and feeds my soul. And King Solomon, one of the wisest people, so the scripture tells us, in the whole history of mankind, just looks at life and says, meaningless. Um, What what does he mean by that? Um, So the Hebrew word is the word hevel, okay? Hevel. And, and the Hebrew word, it literally, it means like smoke, okay? And, and the idea is this. Smoke is an actual thing, isn't it? Okay, it, it fills a room. Anyone been to a, a nightclub recently with a smoke machine? No, I didn't think many of us would have been, but <laughs> so, but so, smoke machines, they fill rooms, don't they? And if you've been to one of these cool funky churches where they have a smoke machine uh, and lasers and lights, and if you you shine a laser, you add smoke to a room and suddenly you can see it even more clearly, can't you? You can see it kind of through the smoke as it hits all the particles of smoke. And, and, And smoke is an actual thing that is in front of you and you can see it and it changes the atmosphere, it changes the room, it, it, it actually changes your experience of what you see. But if you reach out and try to grab it, it just slips through your fingers. You, you can't actually take hold of it, can you? I, I, I'm not sure exactly what they're doing out there today, but when I was writing the session for Children's Church, I, I was trying to get the, the Children's Church leaders just to fill the room with bubbles, just to blow lots of bubbles and get the kids to try and catch bubbles. How many bubbles can they catch and keep? And the reality is, is that if you've ever tried to do that, you, you, you can't really, can you? You think you get one and it goes, ah, Um, but uh, as a kid, you just keep trying, don't you? This endless pursuit of trying to catch the bubbles. And and Hevel is like that, meaningless. Like, it's right there. I can see it, but if I try to grab it, it just slips through my fingers, and I've got nothing. I've got got nothing at the end of it. Um, You'll notice as you read through Ecclesiastes, at the beginning, he starts talking about how everything is meaningless, and he kind of carries that on throughout the book. But partway through, around about chapter 5, you'll notice that he switches up the language a little bit, and he starts talking about how things are this grievous evil. 
So not just meaningless, but these things are a grievous evil. That too is a grievous evil. That too is a grievous evil. And, and I looked into the, the Hebrew words for grievous evil as well. And essentially, this is what they mean. The word grievous in, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word, it, it means to rub something until you, um, until you wear it away. To, to rub something until you wear it away. This is the image of the word grievous. And the word evil, rah, in the Hebrew, uh, it, it literally can mean evil, bad, all of that kind of thing. But it, it, it conjures up this sense of, of heaviness, of weight, okay? And so when he says, this, this too is a grievous evil, essentially what he's saying is that these things as well, they're this weight in this life that just rub away at my soul until there's nothing left. These things just wear me down. I can't catch hold of them. I can't do anything with them. I can see them and I can walk through it, but I can't capture it and, and give substance to it. And, and it just the pursuit of these things wears my soul down. This is essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. Cheery little book, right? Um, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13. Let's jump in and look at some of this stuff. So verse 13, he says this. I think it will come up. Yeah, great. <clears throat> I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are under, done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Flip over to chapter 2. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Basically, King Solomon, who, if you look back at his experience, you look back at the life that he lived and the things that he did, you, you would look at this guy and you would think, this guy lived life, like to the full. He had everything he wanted. He tried anything he could. He, he totally threw himself in. And he gets to the end of it and he says, What's, what was the point? <laughs> what was the point? All of that for what? For what? He basically starts to realize that he, king of the entire land, one of the greatest kings in the world, as he looks, he realizes that he too is going into the grave. Just like the person who wasted their life, just like the person who's poor, just like the person who did all these evils throughout life, he looks at it and he's like, the same fate lies ahead of all of us. And I've done all of this work, put all of this effort in, tried all of these things. And at the end of the day, I'm going to be in the grave just like that person and that person and that person. What was the point in all of that work, all of that effort? And it got me thinking a little bit about work and effort and the things that we do. And, and do you remember a few weeks ago, um, I, I talked about how work had always been part of being human. 
Okay, right back in the Genesis story, God, he puts the, the people in the garden and he says, he says, rule over it, subdue it, go forth and multiply. There's work to be done. I've put you in this thing, but there's work to be done. Now, when he first put them in the garden, the work flowed from a place of blessing. Look at where we are. Look at what God has given us. Look at all this amazing stuff. And we want to live this out and we want to keep it good. We want to keep investing in this and producing more life, more goodness, more hope. And we're inviting more and more people into that. But then the fall happened and they didn't trust God and they trusted in their own ways. And then we read then in Genesis 2 and then into Genesis 3, we read about this. And we read how suddenly the work that God gave them to do, which should have been a joy, it should have been a blessing, suddenly became a struggle. It suddenly became difficult. Suddenly it was just endless strife and strain. Something changed. Something changed. And here's what I kind of want to say to you guys today. What we do is massively, massively, massively impacted and affected by who we do it for. What we do is impacted by who we do it for. You see, before the fall, they were doing it from a place of blessing, a place of relationship. After the fall, they were doing it from a place of striving where they'd been cut off from God and sent out of the garden. And it became hard. It was all about them, all about them just having to live and make life happen and provide for themselves. Whereas before the fall, God provided everything that they needed. They just had to pick it and chop it up and eat it and enjoy it. That was the work, right? After the fall, they had to really work hard to provide for themselves. It was all about them. Remember Colossians? We were reading Colossians last week. Colossians tells us this, do all things for Christ Jesus. Do all things for Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, it tells us that we are part of the ongoing kingdom of heaven that never uh, perishes, spoils, or fades. We're part of something bigger that does not waste uh, away. In Philippians, it tells us that in our relationships with one another, we should be like Christ, that we should humble ourselves and we should serve one another. And it tells us that when we do this, he lifts us up. He lifts up the humble. And I was reflecting on these things, and I was thinking, man, how different is that? to what the world tells us. So see, the Bible tells us that we should do all things for the glory of Jesus, that we should love one another for the glory of Jesus, that the things we do in the world, and, and literally, it, it says in Colossians, that, like, whether you're a slave or free, like, whether it's in your relationship with your husband or wife, like, anything that you are doing, do it all for the glory of Jesus. Your work, your home life, your education, your relationships, your everything, do it as if you're doing it for Christ Jesus himself. And there is blessing in that. There is hope in that. There is freedom in that and fulfillment in that. This is what Emmanuel was talking about last week, that we are made whole in Christ. Made whole in Christ. But the world tells us, you be you. Chase after your dreams. Screw everybody else. Tread on them, stample on them, climb over them, use them for what you want. You get what you want. You are the most important person in the world. That's the narrative that, that this next generation of children are growing up with. And my goodness me, look at the world and the impact that it's having upon the world when suddenly the self is the most important thing. 
The breakdown of community, the breakdown of human identity, the breakdown of peace and joy and hope. When self becomes the most important thing. And, and I think that Ecclesiastes is a book that's all about that. And it took me a moment to, to step out of the oh, meaningless, meaningless and get this bird's eye view of Ecclesiastes when I suddenly realized, hang on, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. The great king. Oh, Ecclesiastes is what happens when you make yourself the great king. When you become king, when you are the ruler of your life, when you are the one who determines how everything should be, Ecclesiastes is where you end up. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. If it's all about you and your fulfillment and who you are and what you want and what you should have, and how you view the world, hey, guess what? At some point, you are going to the grave. And so it's all meaningless. It dies with you. It ends with you. When you are the most important person. When you are the ruler and the king of your life. I wonder, little challenge here for all of us. I wonder if you took a moment and you stopped and you looked at the various areas of your life. I wonder which areas you're struggling in at the moment, which areas are a challenge, which areas are difficult for you. Maybe church. Maybe you come into church at the moment and church is a struggle. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's family life. Maybe it's relationships or something else. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe take, take your pick. You know the areas that are a struggle for you right now where you don't have peace that are difficult. And I wonder... If maybe those areas of our lives are struggles because we've made them all about us. I wonder if we struggle in those things because we make us the most important thing or person in those areas. I don't like church. They don't sing the songs I like. They don't preach from the books I like. I don't like my job. I don't like my boss or the way that he does things or the way that the company thinks that we should treat customers or, I don't know, you fill in the blank. But I wonder how many of us are struggling with various things because we make us king and it's all about us. And I promise you, if you start looking, you'll discover that all the areas of your life where it feels a bit meaningless, it feels like smoke and vapor, it feels like this area of my life is just rubbing away at me until there's not much of my soul left, my joy, my peace, my hope is, is just corroding away. I wonder if that's happening because you've made you king in that part of your life. Colossians, do all things for Christ Jesus. Do all things for Christ Jesus. When we do all things for Christ Jesus, suddenly our gaze is lifted and we see things differently. We see things differently. But when we don't do things for Christ Jesus and we do things for us, we find ourselves in a place where we have no hope, no joy, no peace. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 14. He says this. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. 
makes sense, right? Like poetically, okay? The wise have eyes in their heads, but the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. There is something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Isn't it so frustrating when the good people that you see around you seem to get dealt the rough hand and the people that you think should be getting the justice and the judgment and the rough hand seems to be prospering and everything is good? Doesn't it frustrate you? frustrates me, right? I'm like, ah, Lord, where's the justice in this world? Where's the justice in this world? And this is what he's reflecting on. All of this is, is, is the same. We get the same fate. We go to the same grave. It all ends the same way without Christ. But when you know Christ and when you have Christ, the Bible says, oh, death, where is your sting? Because suddenly death becomes something different. It becomes the doorway to hope. It becomes the doorway to everlasting life, to freedom, to joy, to his eternal presence. In Colossians, uh, Paul writes to, to the uh, church in Colossae, and, and he writes them talking about their love and their faith. And he's like, man, look at the love and the faith that you guys have. And he says this, the love and faith that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven. There's something beyond this world that when we grasp it, that when we take hold of it, that when we understand it and it sinks into our hearts, it changes our experience now. You might walk through the valley, but you walk through it with him. You might be up against something. But he is your shield. He is your victorious right hand. Because you know that you are overcoming in him. It changes something when we know that our hope is in heaven. Proverbs says that without vision, people perish. Without vision, people perish. Guys, we need, as a human race, a bigger vision than just the things around us. We need a bigger vision than the person we see in the mirror. We need to see beyond the experiences that we are living in. We need to see beyond the things that the world tells us. If you just had this, if you just had this, if you just did that, and if you just took that, then you would be happy that you would know these things. Because they fail every single time. We need to see the bigger vision, the eternal vision. We need to see what Jesus has done, that he has died and risen again, and that there is hope for us that we too will rise again to be with him. And then when we have that hope, we, like the Colossian church, will live differently now. We will walk in faith and in love, and that will be our experience. Do you notice how uh, Solomon, he writes about everything under the sun is meaningless? And I know that this next line is cheesy, okay? All right, but I want to ask you, what sun are you living under? What are you looking at? The things under the S-U-N or the things under the S-O-N? 
Which sun are you living under? Because everything under the S-U-N is meaningless unless you know the Son of God. Then everything changes because he is the one through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made and in whom all things hold together. Do, Do things feel like they're out of whack? Like they're getting away from you like smoke? Maybe we need to come back to the one who holds all things together. Have a look at um, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 again, and down to verse 23. Talking about just people, he says this, all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Even at night, their minds do not rest. I I wonder how many of us have had sleepless nights? How many of us have gone to bed with worries in our minds, anxieties that are chewing us up and and, and keeping us just rooted in, in the darkness and the mess and the destruction and the chaos of the things around us? Colossians tells us to set our minds on things above. Set our minds on things above. Philippians says, that we should think about whatever is lovely and admirable. And we talked about this when we were in Philippians. But basically what Paul's saying is think about Jesus. Think about Christ. Fix your mind on him. Fix your mind on him. It is a choice. It doesn't always come naturally to us. We are born into a pattern of sin, into a broken world, and it knocks us about every single day. Even those of us that have been filled with the Spirit and are walking with the Lord, we get bumped around by this stuff again and again and again. And every time that happens, we need to again choose to say, I fix my mind on you, Lord, on you, on the things above. Here's the thing. When we fix our minds on things above, we fix our minds on the eternal. And that is something that will last by its very nature. It is eternal. When we fix our minds on Christ, we know that he is coming again to raise up the living and the dead, that he is coming to judge and that he is going to bring justice and that he is going to deal with all the things that cause pain and hurt and brokenness in our world and that he's restoring life and he's restoring creation and the new heavens and the new earth will come about. And so so when we fix our minds on things above, the things that we do in the here and now They do start to matter. They are no more meaningless. They're no more something that just rubs away at us until we're in the grave. Because when we fix our minds on things above, suddenly the things we do become things that will be part of the eternal kingdom. They become things that will live on. So do you see, Ecclesiastes is a book about what happens when we become king. When you become king of your own life, you are the ceiling. Nothing is higher. And that's a problem. Because, and I don't want to speak for you guys, but if I'm the ceiling for my own life, it's not going to be great. (laughs) I'm not all that great. I'm messing up day in, day out, muddling my way through life, making mistakes here and there. If I'm the ceiling, then I'm, I'm a lost cause. Don't be the ceiling. 
Don't be the ceiling of your life. Don't make yourself king. But when you make yourself king, you can see nothing bigger because you are the biggest thing. And you won't see the hope that is eternal. You won't see the love that God has for you. When you are king, you start to realize, like Solomon did eventually, that if it's just about me and I am king, then something is missing. Ever felt like that? Like something is missing? And that's because we were made with something missing. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 tells us this. It says, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has set eternity in the human heart. There's a God-shaped hole in your heart, in the heart of every human being. The word eternity in the Hebrew is the word olam, olom, something like that, okay? And it means just without end, past the point of vanishing, the horizon point, beyond that, beyond that. It's this sense of something more. There's something more. There's this inbuilt longing deep in us that God has placed there. The problem is that we fill it with all kinds of other things. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29. It says this, This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. I look around at the rat race that we call our world, and what I see is people chasing after everything everywhere. If I can have this, I'll be fulfilled. If I can have that, this longing in me might be satisfied. And yet you hear about people that get it all, and they tell you, I had it all, and I had nothing. In fact, I had less than when I had nothing. Crazy, isn't it? These stories, they come out all the time. Because that's the reality, because nothing in this world, no treasure man could buy, to quote the song, could take the place of drawing near to you. Jesus, he is the only one. I said that the, the, the Hebrew word for uh, eternity was um, olum, and it comes from the, the root word alum, <laughs> okay? And the root word literally means uh, veil, a veil. So it's this sense of there's this veil, but we know there's something behind it. There's the, it goes on beyond the veil, okay? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You see, God has set a veil in the human heart that has something behind it. And 2 Corinthians tells us this, chapter 3. Uh, verse 14 says, But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Only in Christ is it taken away. Verse 18, Now we all, 
who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's a veil in our lives, in our hearts, and we know it. We know there's something more, but we can't see it. But when you come to know Jesus, the veil is lifted. And guess what you get to see? Him in all his glory, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who wants to give you hope, the one who wants to deal with your sin, the one who wants to set you free and fill you with peace and with joy. When you come to know him, that veil is lifted. And we get to see him. We get to see him. So all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon basically is just like, ah, oh, meaningless, meaningless, grievous evil. This is all terrible. Bum, 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 bum. But all the way through, you get these little nuggets that are pointing us to the fact that even Solomon knows there's something else going on. There's something else going on. So, so turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It says this in, in verse 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. This is the turning point for Solomon, okay? He, he's just... Let, let out all of this, uh, look at the mess of life and it's meaningless and I've lost this hope and I'm going to go to the grave. But suddenly there's this, there's this thing that he, he knows and he realizes and he says, actually, come before God. And when you do, don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. For God is in heaven. He is eternal. And if he is eternal, then surely if I am connecting with him, I'm going to discover something else, right? Notice as well, it says, listen, listen. How many of us come before God with our requests? Please, Lord, do this, do this, do this. Give me this, grant me this. Pray for this person. Pray for that situation. Boom, boom, boom. Now, please keep praying, okay? Do not stop doing that. That's not what I'm saying. But how often when we come to pray, when we come before God, do we draw near to listen, Jesus said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who babble with great big long words. Your Father in heaven already knows what you need. Draw near to listen. When you listen, you receive. What do you receive? Words. And when God speaks, what do we know from page one of the Bible? Darkness and chaos become beauty and order and life happens. Do you want that? Then draw near to receive from him, to let his word speak to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1 says this. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteousness, uh, sorry, the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. Hey, we are all in his hands. So let's start trusting him rather than trusting our world, trusting our friends, trusting our, our, ourselves, trusting our own logic. Let's start trusting him because we're in his hands. 
He knows the beginning from the end. And, and here's the thing. For Solomon, as he starts to clock these things, you will notice a change in his narrative, a change in the things he says. So earlier on in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, in verses 2 and 3, he says this, And I declared that the dead who uh, had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So at the start, he's like doom and gloom and oh, better to never be born than to be alive. But then you get these nuggets throughout Ecclesiastes where he's like, there's something about God though. There's something about, if we draw near to him and receive from him and we come into, there's something going on here. And he starts to catch it. And towards the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter nine, verse four, spot what he says. He says, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Did you see the change at the beginning? Better to never live, to be dead. Then towards the end, actually, the living have hope. Why? Because he starts to draw near to God. Chapter 5 is this turning point where he realizes, I need to come before my maker. I need to come before my maker. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, remember your creator. Remember your creator. I want to encourage you guys, if you're going through something, remember your creator. Draw near to God, not to speak, but to listen, because he wants to speak to you. He wants to speak life and hope to you. Now, Solomon wraps the whole thing up, and I'm going to come into land here. You'll be pleased to know. Uh, Solomon wraps the whole thing up with these verses right at the end. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12, he says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I read this line, and I was like, oh, th there's hope there, right? Like, this is how it all wraps up. He knows that at the end of it, when he's been through it all, when he's reflected on all of life, he's reflected on the good and the bad, the righteous and the evil, and he's reflected on the fate of all of them. He knows that we're all in God's hands. And so he's saying, hey, fear God, revere God, be in awe of God, trust God. But you notice how he still hasn't quite let go of the narrative that he was holding on to, that all of our fate is the same. We're all going to face judgment. Uh, this is kind of how he ends, right? He's still got this idea that we're all going to face judgment. And what he hasn't quite realized is that that is an amazing thing. And I don't know about you guys, but, but often when people start talking about judgment and God and the end times and all that kind of thing, a lot of people, even Christians, get a little bit doom and gloom. <laughs> but guys, I long to be judged by him and we all should because he is a just judge and when he judges me all of the stuff that is causing the mess in my life is going to be cast out and he is going to restore me and make me whole and I can't wait for that day <laughs> like 
Come on, Lord. Bring your judgment. And here's why I'm excited about the future judgment. Because I am in Christ. And he has died for my sin. And the punishment that I deserve is upon him. And the life that he has, I now get to live. So when Solomon is like, oh, we need to trust God. But it's almost like a hang on with your fingertips because we're all going to face judgment. Actually, what he hasn't quite grasped is that he ends his book with a real message of hope. Because God is coming to bring justice. That's what a judge does. He brings judgment. He's going to put all things right. The New Testament says this. It says that the people of the past, they longed to see what we have seen revealed. We can be different to Solomon. We can have a different outlook. We can have a bigger hope because we've seen the one who brings the hope. We've seen the one who's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. We've seen what he has promised to do and what he has done upon the cross and through his resurrection. And we have hope in that. We have hope in that. So guys, if you've been being king of any area of your life, I want to I, I, I ask you today, to take off the crown and to lay it down. And I promise you that when you do that and you let him take the throne, suddenly everything will start to change. When you come near to listen to what he says and you let him be king, the one who makes the decrees, suddenly you'll start to hear hope, life, joy, freedom, forgiveness, love in abundance, grace. That's who he is. That's what he brings, and that's the hope that we have in him. Isn't that amazing? That blows me away. That blows me away. I don't want to be like King Solomon. I don't want to be walking through life discovering that everything feels like smoke that I can't quite grasp hold of. I felt like it was at the end of my fingertips, and then I tried to take hold of it, and it escaped me. I don't want to feel like I'm constantly chasing after stuff that is never fulfilling me. I want to rest in his joy and in his peace and in his life. And all I need to do to do that is to let him be my king and to trust in what he says, not in myself, not in the world around me, not in any other logic, not in any other person, just in him.